yes. From, yes. from the high chair. <laughs> Hello everyone, so lovely to be in LA and to be here with Jared who's an old friend of mine. Yes, um, I'm supposed to uh, read a little bit from uh, this book first and then Jared and I will talk, which we've done quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully that will work out fine. Um, Mina, um, this So Much for That Winter is uh, two novellas, Mina Needs Rehearsal Space and a no uh, novella called uh, Days. And actually Days was written first uh, back in 2008 and published in 2010. And uh, Mina Needs Rehearsal Space is from 2013. We decided to put them together in this story uh, about women who are on the brink of invisibility. Uh, they're both very formally interesting because uh, they're playing with the format and also playing with modern communication. The first of the stories uh, in this book is written entirely in one-liners and headlines, an idea that we can talk about where I picked up from because it has something to do with the Internet, which he knows a lot about. <laughs> I saw that. Um, and the other one, I can tell you a little bit about that when we get to it. Uh, actually, can I, can I stand up and read? Because that's easier. How do you... Because I will be sliding down. <laughs> it's easy. I'm used, I'm used to standing up. And I'll sit down when we talk. This is perfect. So I'll read from this uh, Minanese rehearsal space first, which is only headlines. And the main character, Minna, is a composer, and she's uh, over 40, not much over 40, and she's also a, a typical host species. She's the kind of person who lets other people put their teeth in her throat and then drink her blood, and it's draining her, and she's lost her voice, and she's, she's not doing well. She has a crush on a dude called Lars, and she has a big love for Ingmar Bergman, the Swedish cinematographer, who is, of course, dead, but that doesn't stop her from loving him tremendously. I'll read from the beginning, and then you can hear this strange rhythm that the one-liner makes, and also... Uh, because the lines are so short, I noticed when I performed with it in Denmark in the beginning that I sometimes forget to breathe <laughs> between the lines and they're stacked on, on top of each other. So if anyone has an oxygen mask, thank you. <laughs> we'll try it out. Mina introduces herself. Minna is on Facebook. Minna isn't a day over 40. Minna is a composer. Minna can play four instruments. Minna's lost her rehearsal space. Minna lives in Amma. Minna spends her days in the Royal Library. Minna has to work without noise. Minna is working on a paper sonata. The paper sonata consists of tonal rows. Minna writes soundless music. Minna is a tad avant-garde. Minna has a tough time explaining the idea to people. Minna wants to have sound with the music. No. Minna just wants to have sound. Minna wants to have Lars. Minna's in love with Lars. Lars used to really like Minna. Minna doesn't dare launch the relationship app. Lars has a full beard. Lars has light-colored curls. Lars works for the paper. Lars is a network person. 
Lars is Lars Minna thinks, fumbling with the duvet cover. It's morning. Lars has left again. Lars is always in a hurry to get out of bed. The bed is a snug nest. Minna's lying in it, but Lars is on his bike and gone. Lars bikes as hard as he can in the direction of City Hall Square. Lars makes the pigeons rise. Lars has deadlines. Minna has an itch on her face. Minna goes out to the bathroom to check. Lars has kissed her. Minna doesn't look like who she looked like when she made the spaghetti last night. Minna looks like someone who drank all the wine herself. <laughs> Minna walks around in bare feet. The apartment is full of notes. Bach stands in the window. Brahms stands on the coffee table. The apartment's too small for a piano, but a woman should have room for a flute. A woman should have room for a flute, a triangle, and a guitar. Minna takes out the guitar. Minna plays something baroque. Minna plays as quietly as possible. The neighbor bangs on the wall with his sandals. Minna needs a rehearsal space. Minna needs security in her existence. Minna misses the volume. Minna misses a healthier alternative. Minna wants to devote herself to ecology. Minna wants to involve a kid in it. Minna wants to try to be just like the rest. Lars ought to help her, but... Lars uses condoms. Lars is on his bike and gone. Lars is Lars. And I will spare you of the passage where Lars breaks up in a text passage, text message. <laughs> it's not pretty. It doesn't get any prettier when he also blocks her on Facebook, unfriends her, deletes her. It's not nice. She has to go to bed for three days with Ingmar Bergman, and he is dead. So it is, of course, a book that she goes to bed with. And she stays there for three days, and then she has to get up. We all do at one point. And in the excerpt I will read, the last excerpt from Minna, in his rehearsal space, she's biking. And she's biking through Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen, everyone is biking. It's like Amsterdam and Copenhagen, is the, the, these are the cities of bikes. And the one thing that Danes are really good at is biking and texting at the same time. <laughs> Sometimes kills one of us, but who cares? It's, uh, it's a talent we got. And Minna is on her bike through a hot Copenhagen, and she's texting, and the person she's texting with is her sister, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is one of the ticks in her life. She's a little vampire that has sucked onto to Minna and is drinking all the energy out of her and taking her voice and her independence and constantly trying to direct her into the right way of living. And Minna is pretty tired of it, but she hasn't said no yet. And in this uh, excerpt, I will, uh, you'll understand why she's so horrible, uh, Elizabeth. Paper sonatas don't write themselves. Minna bikes to the Royal Library, the city's blazing hot from the sun, the cells blazing hot from messages. Elizabeth's after her. Elizabeth's ten years older than Minna. Elizabeth's married to a successful optician. Elizabeth lives in a very nice neighborhood. The optician's skinny and dry. Minna understands him. The optician's a guest in his own home. Guests have it rough at Elizabeth's. Shoes have to be taken off in the hall. Shoes must never cross the threshold. The guest has to pee. The guest really has to pee. The John lies on the far side of the utility 
room. The shoes have to be removed anyway. The shoes have to be put on and taken off without leaning on the walls. The walls in the hallway must not get any grimy spots. The bench in the hallway must not have any buttons upon it. The bench is not to sit on. The bench is there to create harmony in the hallway. The guest is barefoot and entering a house full of rules. Elizabeth makes the rules. No one else has permission to make rules in the house. Cutlery must not clink against the service. The table must not be wiped with a wet rag. Book must be bound in dust jackets. Fingers must not touch the pictures. The coffee mugs must not stand without coasters underneath. The coffee mugs must not contain coffee. Coffee is forbidden at Elizabeth's. Everyone must drink tea. The optician gets the trots from tea, but the optician must remove his shoes before he runs out to the john. The optician struggles with his suede shoe in the hallway. The optician is afraid to place his fingers anywhere. The optician just reaches the toilet in his stocking feet. The shit runs out of him like green tea. Elizabeth shouts, Is that you, honey? The shit runs and runs. The optician considers whether he dares to shit anymore. Elizabeth shouts, Is that you who came home, honey? The optician reaches for the toilet paper. The optician remembers to tear it off in a straight line. The optician is lonesome completely without allies. Elizabeth and the optician have neither dog nor kids. It's sad, but one thing is certain. Kids set their buttons everywhere. So it's um, obvious that Mina has to flee the scene. And she does, because Minanese Rehearsal Space is, among other things, a story about getting your voice back and refusing to tone it down, and also a mermaid story. And when you're from Denmark, you can't write about mermaids without visiting Hans Christian Andersen. And what happened in that story was a woman who, because she loved a man, gave away her voice. She sacrificed her own voice to live on ground and get him. And this is what Minna has, does, had, has done. And now, in the middle of her life, she wants her voice back. She wants to have the trade reversed. And uh, you'll have to read that yourself, because for the last thing I'll read for you is from the other story, which is called Days. And Days was also written a little bit on the internet, because back in... Uh, 2007-8, I had a heartbreak, and we all know that what writers feel pours into their writing sometimes. And I had this project that I would, for 100 days, every day, every night at 7 o'clock, I would sit down, I would write a list, I, would, I was not supposed to, to uh, spend more than uh, an hour doing it, and then I just send it off into the world on a blog. That blog very uh, quickly got a lot of readers, and um, I did that for 100 days, and it was during a summer where Copenhagen was incredibly beautiful. And then when the 100 days was, were done, and I was completely exhausted, I went to a residency where I met Jerry Kopik. That not that year, not oh, that year. <laughs> no, that's many years ago, but the same place, the same residency. And I cooked up these 100 lists into 39 lists and turned them into an independent story that is remote from my own, but which lends and borrows a lot of, of uh, stuff from my own um, experience that summer. And therefore, this story is also more intimate to read for me, uh, but um, I'll read 
two lists, not from the beginning of the book, but just two lists that I really appreciate to read, and uh, which I think circles around some of the themes that I enjoy in this story. And let me see if I can find them. I woke, walked barefoot across the floor, and ate a bit of bread, took a scrap of paper from the desk and wrote, a red elephant is still an elephant on it, and grew anxious about whether that sort of thing was good enough, felt stupid, felt wan, was myself like an elephant that lurches around and knocks things over, but an elephant among broken glass is still an elephant, just as a person who isn't up to snuff is still a person, and the Brooklyn movie theater is still a movie theater, and the grieving heart is still a heart, and a red elephant is still an elephant. Took the bike to Damhu's pond, and it was when I had to break by the bird-feeding area that I thought of my taxes and then my accountant, and then I biked home to my receipts, crunched the numbers, and this is a condition, I wrote at the bottom of a heating bill. This is a way of being, a change in the structure of existence, like the lull of rainy Sunday mornings, like trampled sneakers and slightly sour cartons of cream, and birds on the ground that eat from your hand and shit in place, rather than flying and birds ought to fly a bird that doesn't fly is no longer a bird slept as if someone shook me to see if I were awake went to the pharmacy where the woman with globular breasts took all the headache pill variants down and explained the differences and her breasts get bigger and bigger every time I go because she wants to tell me what camphor does to the mucous membranes even though I'm buying earplugs and I have to look at the inhaler even though I'm asking for band-aids and I'm certain that these breasts the size of floating dry docks started out as ping pong balls before behavior made them grow walked home slowly lay on the bed, and let one hour's sleep turn into three, entangled in the bedspread like a swaddled babe, woke, put my socks in the drawer, told myself the story of when I met the crown prince, again and again, told it so many times that it got pathetic, whereupon several wounds sprung leaks, made pasta bolognese, and went for a walk through a world that to rub salt in my wounds had turned itself the wrong side out and revealed all its inner beauty, all that fertility in the air, all that weeping in weight. And I'd taken the long way just to see if the elephants in Frelex Bear Gardens had lain down for the night, and the only ones left were the wood pigeons who sat in the grass. It might have been otherwise, I thought, and looked up at the door that now and then stood ajar to the world, sometimes merely so I could poke its finger in my face, and yet other times I catch a glimpse within as of a whale rising up from the sea with its tiny good clear eye peering at me, infinitely mild and inquiring after its long journey from the bottom. Are you okay? Not completely, no. For all that I'd originally asked for was a cup of coffee. And now look at all this. Thanks. Let's see. Well, thank thank you for that. Um, God, this is loud. (laughs) Anyway, um, 
before we start to talk about the work, I, I thought I would say, I had read this article, I, I think someone just came out with a book about, a nonfiction book about the role that luck plays in people's lives. And having just had some success with this book, um, I, think, I think actually the, the, the focus of the book is that people who have success often don't like to talk about the luck that brings them to that success. And having read that article and having been in the middle of what's been something like a maelstrom mm -hmm. of success, I started to think about, well, what is... So what are places where luck actually, where I actually had a lot of luck that led to the success? And one of the places that I think that really, really happened was actually in meeting you. And thank well, you. There, there's multiple reasons for that. I was lucky when we met. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing that when I met Dorte, it was at a residency in Denmark, which is a very strange thing. You go to an old manor house in the middle of a park, like a, a public, a state-owned park. The, the Almost the, a national park. A national park, the, the welfare state in action. <laughs> and the, 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 the manor house is owned by the Danish state, mm -hmm. and it's and the residency and the manor house are, are administered by this extraordinarily bizarre couple. Um, and then... Yes. You were there when when I got there, and you were what like three months away from becoming an international superstar. Yeah, and little did I know. And you had no idea this was <laughs> no. about to happen to you, but it did. It did give me um, a model to work at off watching you go through this success, which you really hadn't orchestrated for yourself so much as Grey Wolf had, had put together, but I was sort of merciless in stealing from this and, and figuring it out. But I also thought that one of the places where I've been, where I was extraordinarily lucky in meeting you was you and I had gotten along extraordinarily well, and then there's always this terrible thing that happens when you meet writers and you really like them, which is you eventually have to read their work. <laughs> and I cannot think of something that would have been more catastrophic than meeting someone that you really like and who you really respect and admire and then having to read their work and their work is terrible. Mm -hmm. And your work isn't. Your work is extraordinarily oh good. <laughs> um, so it was a real relief. It was like, oh, God, I don't have to lie. Because I just envisioned mm -hmm. years of being like, no, your work's really good. Yeah. And, then, and then just sort of lying about it. Um, which does sort of get us to this place of talking about your work. And one of the things, can I just grab this. One of the things that I thought I would show for people who haven't read the book is that when you're reading it... That there are posters in it. Oh, yeah, there are also notes. <laughs> notes. Um, but when you see the work on the page, it's very different than how you just read it, mm -hmm. which is... So this is from Minna, and you can see that each paragraph is at most 15 words. Mm -hmm. And then simultaneously, well, not simultaneously, but also with days, you know, these are in numbered lists. Mm -hmm. And so this was done in 2007, right? Days? I wrote it in 2008, I think. 2008, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But it's sort of interesting because it's very prescient of mm -hmm. what 
would then become the dominant method of communication on the internet for a couple of mm -hmm. years, mm -hmm. which were just these idiotic lists. Mm -hmm. um, and then Minna in particular, and I think you can speak to this more than I can, is directly influenced by, by Facebook, yeah. right? Definitely, because actually Minna started out as sort of uh, morose poems against the internet because I thought it was so incredibly stupid that we were supposed to <laughs> to express ourselves in there with, uh, with such short sentences. Uh, and back in the old days, uh, Facebook would also force us into have our own name in the beginning of everything. And... Uh, I sort of rejected that. I hated that. So I wrote these uh, morose, satirical, hateful poems that was never supposed to be uh, posted anywhere. They were, they were just lying on my desk as something I enjoyed at night when I was feeling hate for the internet. <laughs> and then uh, suddenly I found out two things. One, that this alter ego or this character Minna was really, really fun working with and that I could use her for many different things but also that uh, it, was, it was a lovely game to play with myself. There was some sort of really, really nerdy linguistic thing going on there. And also I thought, is it at all possible to write a complex story, a deep complex story with many angles on on modern life using only headlines. Right. This is also the language of the news media and it's like we... Right, and you've, you've spoken to this idea that now everything speaks in headlines, right? That it's just coming from everything. Everywhere. It's, and, and also, it's very, very fun for a writer to toy with this idea uh, that everything should be nailed down to headlines, but if we look at politics and journalism and everything else, it's pretty scary that it should be you know, boiled down to one-liners all the time. So what works well in the lap of a, of a writer is probably not so good in the White House. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just telling you. <laughs> and so this is very much in a different tradition than the Scandinavian literature that we seem to be awash in in the U.S. right now. Which is what? <laughs> oh, names that I wouldn't dare to try to pronounce. <laughs> but, you know, there, there is very much two models right now. There's crime fiction, mm -hmm. which is a very peculiar genre that mm -hmm. Scandinavian crime novel is like secular humanists reaffirming mm -hmm. original sin. No, they're and, just perverse. Well... Either I mean, or. They turned into perverse. Uh, and then so. there's also huge multi volume books mm -hmm. about the minutiae of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And those seem very popular. You mean a Karl Ovis? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> that would be. Yeah, that would be, that would be a that name. That would be I, one of them. <laughs> that would be a name I wouldn't dare to pronounce. Um, but you are writing in a very different, very different style, and that's a tradition in, or is it? Yes, I would say that I write minimalistic, in, in Danish minimalism, but Danish minimalism is quite often not filled with a kind of compression that I put into my stories. It's like in my uh, minimalist style, there is a lot of stuff always fighting to get out of the form. And this I took from the Swedes because right. I studied Swedish literature at university and I love the big Swedes. I love their existentialism and their uh, courage to look at existence and life as it was. They're not very funny, however. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, you don't get a good sense of humor from staring into the dark every uh, winter with your eyes wide open. But the Danish language has some sort of aesthetic uh, vitality in it that comes from lack of words. I mean, the English language has about 500,000 words, and the Danish language has half that amount. So when English uh, people speak, they always try to find the right word to express exactly what is said. In Denmark, we, we have perhaps four words meaning the same thing, and we have to find the right context instead. So it's an incredibly playful language. It's like playing with Lego. Only in Denmark could Lego be invented and it comes from the language because the language sort of works that way we invent words all the time the Swedes hate that by the way I once told that to a movie, a Swedish movie director that we that the Danes played with language like that and that I envied uh, the Swedes for having such a classical and beautiful language And but in Denmark we played and he said well you s- stop doing that immediately <laughs> so, they think we're naughty, we are but um now, did you, I, I, sw- I can't remember, did you meet Bergman or did you just go to his house? I just slept in his daughter's bed. Uh, the daughter wasn't there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I spent some time on Gothland mm. where he lived on a small island called Foy, north of, of uh, that. And while I was writing Minna Needs Rehearsal Space, it was a complete coincidence. I had just finished that uh, book and then went to this place. And everywhere I went, I would run into people who were either related to Berkman or, or sleep in his daughter's bed. <laughs> I don't want to tell that story how I ended up there, but <laughs> no. It was a residency where she also stayed. I yeah. see. And, you, and you, so he's, a, <clears throat> he's not just a huge figure in this book. He's a huge figure in most of your recent work, right? I mean, you've been engaging with him and well, his I work. Wish. <laughs> um, yes. I would, I would say that... I came across the, his memoirs called La Turna Magica. I don't, I, I'm actually not that much into his films, <laughs> but he was an in, incredibly good writer. <laughs> he, uh, he was, um, I mean, if you take Strindberg, the big playwright of, uh, of Sweden, he would definitely have been a, 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 a movie director if the movie had been invented. And, and if, uh, and it's a, so he's such a good writer, Ingmar Bergman. And his memoirs should be read by everyone who's working in art because he's ruthless but, and blunt and very, very smart on, um, on what it means to be a creative and what it takes to be creative. So I try to read that book once a year. It's my Bible. But I've had, plenty, I've had many Bibles during my writing life. Don't you have, feel that, you know, you don't stick to one guru. You do throw them away when you're done with yeah, them. That's no, what I, I do. <laughs> so. so what's it like being a writer in Denmark? <laughs> I, I, sh- I should admit I actually know the answer to this because I have spent some time around them but I, I find the Danish writers and Danish literary scene to be endlessly fascinating and it's I wanted to hear your take on what you think okay, how I you think th- is well when I, I you know a thing that I put in I Hate the Internet which was we were just talking about was very misinterpreted by at least one Danish writer um when I went and stayed in this farmhouse, like this farmhouse is a little bit like you've decided to go onto the set of a horror film <laughs> because there's 
at any given time about 12 people living in it mm -hmm. and you're completely isolated and no one has a car and in in one way it's really amazing because you abscond from capitalism but on the other hand someone could just kill you and kill everyone in it. And you that, do that's the American thinking. Right. <laughs> I mean, and you know we have you, gun control. You, you do get you do get extraordinarily strange people staying with you. And it mm -hmm. was very clear at the time that all of the women were very serious about their work and very and very interested in what they were doing and all clearly doing interesting things. And the men by and large, were extraordinarily pompous and, and, and terrible. And actually, do you remember that one of them shaved his pubic hair and left I it? I remember the yeah. one who shaved his pubic hair. Yeah. I remember. And who can forget? It, well, he, he left it in the toilet and he was didn't... just marking his territory. And didn't flush, and then I had to go and grab Dorte and be like, it wasn't me, because I was the <laughs> only other person who wasn't incredibly fair, right? <laughs> So, <laughs> Just say it spilled the bean. You were panicking. You were <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the the impression that I have received, and I, I could be, or I've formed, then I could be wrong, is that there is a hierarchy of culture there in terms of the literary arts mm -hmm. that's just incomprehensible. Like, there's a hierarchy here, but it's not state-funded, and it's really diffuse. Mm -hmm. Whereas there, you have one academy, right? Or, yeah. And it seems to produce extraordinarily pompous people. And then, <laughs> and then you're quite on the outside of that, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not part of that. But you're right, there is, there is one academy and it produces six students a year. And they're sort of in there with the former, former students of that school are now the teachers. That's a bad loop. I mean, and it's been going on for 25 years, feeding the same shit just going through generations. Um, but they're a very, very talented writer when they get in there, and there are many of them pretty frustrated when they come out of it. And, um, but also very powerful, because they're the only academy that there is. And there are five million Danes. Right. I mean, that's not even a street in Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean... It's such a tiny, tiny country and a tiny, tiny language. And actually, I would say that we're not even a language we, or, or a country, we're a tribe. Right. And, if, and all the literary communities I've met in the world are pretty strange, <laughs> but the smaller they get, the worse they get. I mean, because everybody's been married to everyone, everybody has kids with everyone, everybody's sleeping with each other's wives. I mean, it's just completely claustrophobic. Right. And I, I've stayed away from it, also because I come from a different part of Denmark than, than this. But at this residency, we all come together. And this is actually the only place in Denmark where we coexist. Right. Otherwise, there is right. completely separated. And it's 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 mostly in Copenhagen. Right? Yes. And you've exiled yourself as far as you can. I have, I've completely exiled myself from it. You're f way in the north. I'm on the I'm 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 at the west coast of the North Sea. You all, I mean, we're so far away from that place right now. <laughs> we're on the west coast of, but I live in the dunes by the North Sea and and uh, far away from from Copenhagen. Sure. But. But it's interesting that you. It's always nice to be at residencies like the one where we met with international writers because actually, hell, 
was also the place that changed my luck. That's so there, right. m- there must be something in the water there. Right. I well, mean, I mean, we, we should talk about that too because this is one of, my, one of my favorite stories mm-hmm. of any writer that I know of, let alone actually know, <laughs> which, which is you went from being a known but not uh, especially best-selling writer in mm-hmm. Denmark mm-hmm. and exploded in the, mm-hmm. the pro- like, four months into some kind of international sensation, the yeah, Dorothy North Syndrome. <laughs> the syndrome, has, which you're now suffering yeah, from. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, but, I mean, that is not a usual story in any that's way. It's a really, really weird story. And when we met, I had just gotten uh, a story accepted by uh, The New Yorker. And I was the first Dane ever to have a story in there. And I knew it was big. But I had to look at Jared to understand how big it was. Because I asked ridiculous questions. I had no idea how... how uh, for instance, I didn't know that they were paying me. <laughs> and we, we, you laughed at right, an entire yeah. evening. Um, and, but the whole thing about having a story in the New Yorker which was the last thing in a long line of, of, of work I had done in America, uh, was a pretty crazy thing. I um, wrote the story collection that is right here, Karate Chop, and uh, had a translator, and we translated it one by one, and he said, should we try and have it out in America? Well, just at least send the stories to magazines, and we started doing that. And there was, I've never had a story rejected in America. It just, and I always thought, oh, that's an easy country. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, my self-esteem was not that big. I thought, oh, they're going to take all kinds of crap people sent them. Well, here's some more. And every, everything I sent, they took. And, um, and then a little bit down the line, I, uh, there was an American at uh, this residency in Denmark called Fiona Marcel, who's also a writer. And I, we share things when you're at these residencies. So she saw some of these stories, and then she went home to Brooklyn. And uh, when I came home from the residency, there was a mail from uh, a public space, uh, the magazine in Brooklyn, and asking me for stories. And I said, yes, of course. What I didn't know was that the editor of that place is a very powerful, she's like in the center of the whole Brooklyn community, right. you could say, uh, former uh, head of Paris Review and stuff like that. So that was what sort of, and, and she had been introduced to my stories from Fiona Marcel, who took them to Brooklyn and gave it to her. And it's, it's, and that's just a, a crazy, wonderful story, because I just started out having fun. I, and I actually think that's a very important thing with writing. I mean, luck is important. It's also important to find some kind of enjoyment in what you do. That's hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, but, I mean, the first three books I wrote were, were not that fun writing. But then I kind of decided that no matter how bleak and black and dark and strange I write, it has to be a fun experience working with the material at least no matter what happens with it. And, and uh, I think that spun off. I think nothing good started to happen in my writing until I decided to actually somewhat enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, and not struggle so hard to be good at it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, 
I hate the internet is the only which I love by the way it's is the um, the only book I've done that was anything like fun and exactly and and also books that are fun to write are not focused on perfection they're just right. focused on presence and things that are focused on presence has an energy in it that you can get away with a lot of stuff if you work with that right. and this is one of the reasons why I completely adore your book uh, is that it has such presence and you can tell that it's, it's written in yeah, sort well, of friend, it, <laughs> you know. it, it completely um, absconds from any responsibility towards quality <laughs> so <laughs> that's not true but well I mean that was the idea behind writing it actually was mm -hmm. that I just anything that felt like Anything, anything that felt like it had, it was something that I was doing because there had been an inherited language of literature mm -hmm. or a sense of like, well, if you do this crazy thing, you won't get published. Um, I just did it, you know, and it was, it was enjoyable. And then, you know, nothing has been fun about it since <laughs> because it did required an enormous amount of effort to get into the world and then sort of mm -hmm. when the world starts paying attention which you know yeah. um, that is also not that fun it's fun for about a month it's and fun then for about a month then you you, you you sort of divide your life up into there's daughter who's the assistant of this bitch who runs around in the world always talking into microphones right you know you sort of divide yourself into a public self and well, and you really have a public self. You're on television. <laughs> In Sweden, but that's not... <laughs> My father actually saw the... One of the things that Dorte did, which was extraordinarily nice, is she held up a very early copy of I Hate the Internet on... Swedish television? Yeah, the hottest book show in Sweden, in Scandinavia. And um, I mean. my father was really impressed. He, by he that. saw that? Yeah, he saw, well, he just got a, um, he finally just got an Android phone, so now he's using the internet, which is great. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh -oh. it's, it's, it's really wonderful. But so he saw, so he's, he, of all of the things related to the book that he's looked at, that was the thing that impressed him the most. <laughs> Was that? I mean, he has no idea who you are because I, I tell him nothing. But um, he he was like, yeah, I can't believe that someone in Scandinavia held up your book. And I was like, it's <laughs> someone in Scandinavia <laughs> held up your book. And he was he was impressed. But did it help you? Did it sell to Sweden? Uh, no. Uh, no, no, Look. no, no, no. It was it, it did impress my dad. That that's about. <laughs> that's that's about it. Yeah, so, yeah. how do you think you're received as a writer? Very generously in America. But do you but do you think that you're in England and other places? Do, do you think that being a woman limits your reception? Because I think I think it totally limits your reception. I I do think there's a bias there. I do even think, it, somebody, my editor, Fiona McRae, asked me the other day in New York, do you think a woman could get away with writing uh, My Struggle by Karl Vaknausko? And I said, no, 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 no. I she would be conceived as incredibly self-absorbed if she did that. Yeah, I, I mean, I... He's an intellectual. That's right. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I mean, it's particularly interesting to me because I have had this book come out and it's had this rapturous reception. And it's clear to me that the reception, at least in part, is based in my gender. If, had I written it, it would have been. <laughs> no, exactly. If you, if you had written it, you just would have gotten shit and of, of all different kinds. And yet I, I think when your work gets reviewed, there, which is not to say that this material isn't in the work, but I think there is an extreme focus on the the places where women's literature is mm-hmm. received, which is emotion and feeling. Yeah. But there's also, and the, and this is the one part of it that I'll read, um, which struck me when I was rereading this, struck me as being. Don't read my notes. No. No, it struck me as being particularly interesting given that this is the day after Brexit, which... (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's horrible. Which is... um, Okay, so I I apologize. This is awful to have someone else read your work in front of you. Um, Minna gets the connection. Minna walks around among ordinary people. Ordinary people cheat on their taxes. Ordinary people go to swinger clubs. Ordinary people flee the scene of the crime. Ordinary people enlist in the Nordland Regiment of the SS. Ordinary people are quizlings, collaborators, camp followers. Ordinary people just need a stage. The pig performs gladly. Cowards are in good supply, too. Minna doesn't get how she could have ignored it. Minna's clear-sighted enough. Minna's watched TV. Minna followed the war in the Balkans. Minna watched neighbors out each other to Serbian militias. One day you're tending cabbage together in the backyard. The next day you're on a bus headed for a mass grave. And I think... That's the bleak side. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what else would I fix it? You read it beautifully. On tour with uh, me. But I think, isn't that... You know, isn't there a way in which this incredibly dense section and this incredibly dense writing style is entirely about what is the issue of the moment? Exactly, and 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 it's it's rarely that. One of the things that bothers me about the way female writers, which is also a phrase I actually hate, the phrase female writers, but women who write are received is that it is as if we're not supposed to have an intellectual outlook on what we do. It's as if we have not, we're not thinking about where we're going with our work. And of course we are. We're not in, you know, it's not all emotions. We do have something we want to say about things. And also, you know, sometimes when you get reviewed as a woman, there's a lot of sexist shit in the reviews. I mean, really sexist shit. Uh, and uh, the first thing you learn as a writer is you, you never talk back at the reviewer because the, the publishers go, don't, 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 just don't do that. But boy, you want to do it sometimes. I mean, because it's it's really bad. And the only solution to that, Jared, is stop reading the reviews. I, I, the, the only reviews I read are the ones on Amazon and on Goodreads because that's where the meanest people are. <laughs> And actually, there's a UK edition of um, I Hate the Internet coming out in a couple of months, and I'm trying to convince them. They have, a, they have a quote from the New York Times, which is very favorable, and I'm trying to convince them to put this random guy's quote on the front, which is like, this book is so completely terrible, so inept, so juvenile, so badly written that it doesn't even deserve the consider- consideration or to be thought about. <laughs> And I really can you I, convince them? Are they convinced? Uh, no, 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 they're not. But if if you know, if I had my way, that would be 
one of the selling points of the book because um, I sort of find I find the reviews that you get from professional reviewers to I can't read those no. but I do like sort of both the adulation and the contempt you get from normal readers <laughs> I try to avoid both, I would say. But, no, I, but I, I do think that your work has a deep, deep intellectual strain in it. And I think mm-hmm. it's interesting because being from Denmark, you're also at something like the origin point of this moment that we're in, right? You have this far-right government, yeah. which precedes all the far-right triumph of 2016, yeah. You know, and it, it's interesting to see how in Minna you have this this six lines or seven lines. That's the mm-hmm. that's the origin of and the explanation of the moment that we're in. Exactly, with all the rage and all the contempt and all the and the, the entire it's like there's something cooking out there. I actually think it was you who said to me there is something right now that makes people respond well to rage. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think I may have said that in the context of having a book exactly. with hate in the title, which was not what I was expecting. But no, actually, Joan, Bill Jones, who's sitting right in front of me, has this idea <laughs> that um, what we are in is a countercultural, a countercultural revolution, but the revolution is indistinguishable to most people because our idea of what countercultural revolution is is hippies or, or leftist anarchists, mm-hmm. but what it actually is right now in this moment is coming from the right yes, and coming definitely. from the far right. And Denmark certainly Oh 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 it's it's so bad. All all the good stuff you were talking about with the with the Denmark and the welfare system is being unraveled by radical right-winged uh, dudes and dames right now. Yeah. And it's all over the place. It's uh, it's sort of um, an infection in the western world right now or a backlash or, or it's rage but the f- flip side of rage or the other side of rage or maybe the origin of rage here is fear. I mean, and I must say this, I've been in America for five days and I'm a lot in airports and there's a lot of television in airports. And I I understand why people who sit cooped up in living rooms with their blinds down and watch this get scared and then why they get rage. And it is, and it feels completely stupid that we're sort of cooking up our own problem here. It's like a, a very, very bad wheel of destruction that I don't know uh, how we're going to stop without nuking Denmark. <laughs> I mean, uh, there was somebody who said that about, um, I think it was another Republican candidate who wanted really much to be president himself, mm-hmm. who said, we got to stop Trump or else he will nuke Denmark. <laughs> when we've been awake ever since, I mean, that's <laughs> scary, you know. So should we open this up to audience questions? I think yes, we have let's do that. I think we've yeah, we're, yeah. we're quite close. Mm-hmm. So does anyone have questions? Mm-hmm. What are your other Bibles besides, the besides ruining that. the scene? <laughs> besides the Berlin other Bibles been over the years? Um, she's asked me what other very important influence Bibles I've had. Um, they've been Swedish. For instance, a Swedish writer called Shastin Ekman meant a lot to me in my 20s. Um, and she's also, I wrote my thesis on her. 